The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, can you hear me okay? It's loud? It's loud? Okay. A little bit louder. So is this good now? Okay. So, starting uh, the first Sunday of October, for this next seven days, is what's called Earth Care Week. Some years ago, when there was an international meeting of Insight Meditation teachers, uh, uh, we were talking about environmental issues, climate change issues, and various things. And one of the things that came out of that was that let's uh, celebrate one week a year uh, Earth Care, caring for the Earth, and uh, in October. So yesterday was a start, and uh, in that regard, I will somehow talk on that topic. And uh, kind of there's a couple of coincidences that have come into play with this date. The first is that um, a few days before, on Wednesday, uh, we finished, completed uh, putting in solar electric panels on our roof upstairs here. And so, um, and uh, we all got started and off we're running. And a few days later, I was shown the report. We get a regular reports, with, and it told us uh, how much uh, carbon we were not, we did not put into the atmosphere, which was very nice to see, reducing our carbon footprint. And um, so that's, I'm, I'm very happy about this. And it's a wonderful thing that, um, not only for our sake and for the environment's sake, but to some degree, uh, being a Buddhist center, being a, uh, we're a little bit, uh, ideally religious groups would be a little bit role models for some good goodness in the world. So maybe in a small way we're a role model for something good. So that was one coincidence. The other coincidence was uh, the uh, headlines today, or the news today, from um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it was quite dramatic, that news, uh, what they've come up with. Um, three years of studies, I guess all the data on climate change, and apparently a fair amount of debate amongst different government organizations looking at this issue, and to uh, ag uh, agree on uh, a report. And the report is that uh, they say that we have 12 years to make an important difference in this whole climate. There's clearly the uh, Earth is warming up. And, uh, and apparently the, the limit, it's still bad, but the limit that they want to see it go is that uh, from pre-industrial times to, to modern times, they want to, don't want to see the average temperature of the globe go up more than 1.5 centigrade. And, um, but right now, it's, they say it's on track to go above that up to 2.0, unless big changes uh, are put in place in the next 12 years. And if, it, and if we're not able to do that in 12 years, and we get up there to a uh, two-degree uh, temperature raise, uh, there's going to be major, uh, already there's going to be huge changes without that, but if it goes above that 1.5 degree rate, it's going to be pretty dramatic what's going to happen. And 
they uh, you know talked a lot more about uh, the rising sea more rising sea levels even higher. They talked about uh, uh, so the uh, ice caps uh, uh, melting more. They talked about um, you know there's they, they predicted something like ten million people who live close to the coasts uh, would be seriously affected by flooding and all kinds of things. And uh, I don't remember all the detail and data, but it was pretty dramatic what they said. And, uh, you know, some of us have been hearing such things for a while. And um, and it's certainly, for some people, quite concerning this should happen. And some people care enough about this that uh, they're changing their lifestyles and trying to promote uh, greener uses of all kinds of things and trying to reduce the carbon. The biggest impact on this is the carbon in the atmosphere. And so the idea is to try to get that down and reduce that. And um, <clears throat> so how do we live in this world with these kinds of news? How do we live with the emotions we might have, the feelings we have, the confusions we might have? Um, it's, uh, I don't know how it is for you all, but um, you know I'm not a climate change scientist. And uh, it's kind of invisible to some degree. I mean, we have all kinds, we see in the news all kinds of climate things that are changing and they're fairly dramatic. But this idea of 12 years from now, somewhere in the future, I believe it. I believe that you have to take this data seriously. But it kind of little bit um, <clears throat> belongs to kind of the, the world that we who do mindfulness practice don't live in so much, don't emphasize. We emphasize living here and now, in the present moment, in a direct experience. And now we're talking about, you know, years from now and something that can't be completely certain. And how do we live with that? How do we relate to that and all that? So uh, the Buddha didn't only live in the present moment. Uh, He told stories. And he told stories about the past. And what kind of past that was, uh, we don't know. I mean, I kind of think of it as uh, fables, you know, tales, myths, and things like that. And uh, there is a Buddhist myth or story that the Buddha tells of uh, the origins, <coughs> beginning, like Genesis, the Buddhist Genesis. And, uh, you know, every good religion should have a Genesis story. And so we'll, we'll accommodate the requirement. And... Um, so the Buddha tells a story, and, um, and remarkably, <coughs> it's a story of uh, how people live affects the environment. And the environment changes dramatically depending on the ethics, the ethical behavior of, the pe- of people, of people, of beings. And there's a direct correlation between the ethical behavior of people and the deterioration, the unethical behavior of people, and deterioration of the environment. And, uh, you know, and this is a story that was told 2,500 years ago, where they didn't have the benefit of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change (laughs) to come up with the data. So uh, I wanted to uh, tell you, read some of this uh, story, uh, this Buddhist Genesis origin myth, and what you should know about this is that um, um, 
it seems that the kind of understanding of the universe that this comes out of is belongs to the yo-yo theory of the universe that the universe expands and then contracts and expands and contracts and does this endlessly and we're just right now in the middle of one of these expansion contractions that are just suited for uh, human life and and climate change and um, all these things it was right we're right in this this particular zone but you know that's going to change and uh, when things expand and go outwards the universe expands outwards then uh, planets don't exist anymore uh, stars don't exist anymore and physical embodied beings don't exist anymore and what there is is um, beings um, who dwell mind made feeding on delight self-luminous moving through the air glorious so so there's these uh, 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 non-physical mind made beings that are kind of floating around somewhere in some very high heaven there's all these levels and levels and levels of heavenly realms that Buddhism posits kind of in this mythology and the very highest realm is where all beings end up uh, for a very long time when the world has expanded. And then at some point, you know, the universe contracts. The yo-yo comes back, contracts. And so then things begin kind of, you know, coming back to kind of the, what we recognize. So here's a story. <clears throat> there comes a time when Sooner or later, after a long period, this world, this universe, contracts. At the time of contraction, the beings there dwell mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And they stay like that for a long time. But sooner or later, after a very long period, this universe begins to expand again. At that time of expansion, those beings, having passed away from there, are mostly reborn here in our particular world. Here they dwell, mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And they stay there for a very long time. At that period, there was just one mass of water, and all was darkness blinding darkness. Neither moon nor sun appeared. No constellations or stars appeared. Night and day were not distinguished, nor months, nor fortnights, no years or seasons, and no male and female uh, beings being reckoned just as beings. And sooner or later, after a very long period of time, savory earth spread itself over the waters where those beings were. It looked just like the skin that forms itself over hot milk as it cools. It was endowed with color, smell, and taste. It was the color of fine ghee or butter, and it was very sweet like pure wild honey. Then, some being of a greedy nature said, I say what can this be and tasted the savory earth on its finger in so doing it became taken with a flavor 
and craving arose in it. Then other beings, taking their cue from that one, also tasted the stuff with their fingers. They too were taken taken with the flavor, and craving arose in them. And so they set to with their hands, breaking off pieces of the stuff in order to eat it. And the result of this was that their self-luminosity disappeared. And the result of the disappearance of their self-luminosity, the moon and the, and the sun appeared, night and day were distinguished, months and four nights appeared, and the year and its seasons. To that extent, the world re-evolved. And those beings continued for a very long time feasting on the savory earth, feeding on it and being nourished by it. And as they did so, their bodies became coarser, and a difference in looks developed among them. Some beings became good-looking, others ugly. And the good-looking ones despised the others, saying, we are better looking than they are. And because they became arrogant and conceited about their looks, the savory earth disappeared. And at this, they came together and lamented, crying. Oh, I don't have to read that. And then, when the savory earth had disappeared, a fungus cropped up in the manner of a mushroom. It was of a good color, smell, and taste, and it was the color of fine ghee or butter, and it was very sweet, like pure wild honey. And those beings set to and ate the fungus. And this lasted for a very long time. And as they continued to feed on the fungus, so their bodies became coarser still, and the difference in their looks increased still more, and the good-looking ones despised the others. And because they became arrogant and conceited about their looks, the sweet fungus disappeared. Next, creepers appeared, shooting up like bamboo. And they too were very sweet like pure wild honey. And those being set to and fed on those creepers. And as they did so, their bodies became even coarser and the difference in their looks increased still more. And it continued this way. Then after the creepers had disappeared, rice appeared in open spaces, free from powder and from husks, fragrant and clean grained. And what they had taken in the evening for supper had grown again and was ripe in the morning. And what they take in the morning for breakfast was ripe again in the evening, with no sign of reaping. And these being set to and fed on this rice, and this lasted for a very long time. As they did so, their bodies became coarser still, and the difference in their looks became even greater, and the females developed female sex organs, and the males developed male organs. And the women became excessively preoccupied with men, and the men became excessively preoccupied with women. And I'm sure there are other options. But <laughs> Owning to this excessive preoccupation with each other, passion was aroused, and their bodies burnt with lust. And later, because of this burning, they indulged in sexual activity. Um,
And those beings who in those days indulged in sex were not allowed into a village or a village or a town for one or two months. Accordingly, those who indulged for an excessively long period in such immoral practices began to build themselves dwellings so as to indulge undercover. Now it occurred to one of those beings who was inclined to laziness, well now, why should I be bothered to gather rice in the evening for supper and in the morning for breakfast? Why shouldn't I gather it all at once for both meals? And he did so. Then another one came to him and said, Come on, let's go rice gathering. No need, my friend, I've gathered enough for both meals. Then the other, following his example, gathered enough rice for two days at a time, saying, That should be about enough. Then another being came and said to the second one, Come on, let's go rice gathering. No need, my friend, I've gathered enough for two days. And that one decided to gather for four days. And then the next round, someone gathered for eight days. However, when those beings made a store of rice and lived on that, husk powder and husk began to envelop the grain. And where it was reaped, it did not grow again. And the cut place showed and the rice grew in separate clusters. Um, Then one greedy-natured being, while watching over his own plot, took another plot that was not given to him and enjoyed the fruits of it. So they seized hold of him and said, You've done a wicked thing, taking another person's plot like that. Don't ever do such a thing again. I won't, he said, but... He did the same thing, a second and third time. Again he was seized and rebuked, and some hit him with their fists, some with stones and some with sticks. And in this way, taking what was not given and censoring and lying and punishment took their origin. Then those beings came together and lamented the arising of these evil things among them, taking what was not given censoring, lying, and punishment. And they thought, suppose we were to appoint a certain being who would show anger when anger was due, censure when it, uh, and censor those who deserve it, <coughs> and banish those who deserve banishment. And in return, we would grant him a share of the rice. So they went to one among them, uh, the most pleasant and capable, and asked him to do this for them in return for a share of the rice, and he agreed. And he was called the people's choice. And then it goes on a little bit more, but that's basically up to date. (laughs) 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 The people's choice. And uh, so, kind of the moral of the story is that uh, uh, craving, greed, has bad imp- impact on, on beings and people get coarser and coarser and one thing leads to another and it um, you know and eventually we have to have governments and people have private property and all these things happen that weren't really necessary if people hadn't been so greedy and craving and wanting and all this stuff so this kind of uh, uh, ideal uh, you know maybe kind of little bit harks back to uh, the monastic communities that the Buddha created where there was, uh, everything was held pretty much in common. There was no private land and private buildings and uh, private food. 
It was all shared together in a collective kind of way. Very different than how the rest of society sets itself up. So here, uh, this is you know an exa- story of uh, human greed, craving, stealing, and all kinds of things, taking what is not given, uh, affects the environment, and things change and change and change. And so the Buddha connected this to the ethical life, to the life of craving, the life of selfishness, of conceit, of, of uh, stealing, and all kinds of things. And I think that it's not a too difficult exercise to consider that man-made climate change, a big part of it can be uh, traced to something like, if not greed, no one wants to admit they're greedy, overconsumption, wanting more. And now we see the impact. And we see the impact all around us of what goes on. And it's, you know, even here in California, you don't have to go very far to see the impact of all this and uh, how people live and how it affects the environment. And it's pretty, and pretty dramatic in some places. <clears throat> so the Buddhist analysis of all this is uh, twofold, I think. One is to uh, look at our own ethical behavior. Ethicals here means how our behavior affects the world around us and how the quality of our intention, the quality of the, of the motivation for our, this behavior, what's that quality? And to take a really good, serious, deep inner look to see what's really in there. Uh, this, em- this emphasis of really taking a deep look inside is uh, something that Buddhism has uh, champions to a great degree, almost like taking an inventory. Uh, Go and really look and see, is there anything that resembles greed, hatred, or delusion within? Is there anything that resembles craving, greed, aversion? Is there anything that, uh, that, um, that is selfish inside of us? Mostly in Buddhism, the, the encouragement is, if you can find that in you, you'll discover that it hurts. You'll discover having those dwell inside, those forces inside of you, is not healthy for you. You'll feel and sense. You don't have to take anybody's word for it. If you're able to do the mindfulness exercise of really going inside to tap into the quality of your heart, you'll feel the problems of having those things in, inside of you. And that's the usual analysis. But every once in a while, in these kinds of texts, in this mythic story, um, they'll, Buddhism will talk about how it also has an effect in the outer world. And it's not, you don't, you're not free. You're not, you're not kind of like a, you know, it's not, in, it's not, you know, it's not like our lives have no effect on the world around us. And when we have, I don't know, six million people in the Bay Area, 36 million people in California, 360 million maybe people in the United States. What is it, the population of the world now? Seven billion? Something like that, give or take a few. And um, uh, so the collective impact is so huge. I was struck, I said this yesterday, that when I lived in the mountains, I lived in the wilderness, I used to marvel that the wilderness didn't need us. 
that you know I was living there for years and uh, walking the grounds and and um, you know it, if we weren't there our monastery it wouldn't you know I don't think the wilderness you know would have noticed and um, but we you know but now we're we are the creatures in the world who are making the biggest impact on the environment around us. So how do we care for that? What do we do? What's our role? How do we do something? And I think that coming from Buddhism, what I think is nice is to consider how the the interrelatedness, the close interconnection between the quality of our inner life and the quality of the environment that we live around us. That... um, that if we want to care for the earth, for the environment that we, ha- that we live in, that we share in, that we don't have to see it as a, a diminishment of ourselves or a, a, that we have to you know, somehow burden ourselves with restraint, burden ourselves now with guilt or shame that you know, we know, we, you know, I'm not allowed to have these things now, I'm supposed to be less, I have to be an ascetic or... I have to kind of reduce my, you know, simplify my lifestyle and it's a burden. You know, it's all these pleasures that I have is, you know, be given up and my security, all kinds of things will be given up and it's just a drag. Uh, if that's the attitude, if that's the understanding, it is a drag. And who's going to be motivated for that? A lot of people are going to just kind of blow, blow it off. But uh, uh, Buddhism has this wonderful emphasis on the interplay of the envir- outer environment and the inner inner environment, and and to feed, to discover how simplifying our lives, how caring for the environment, caring for other people, is a way of caring for ourselves. Is a way not of diminishing ourselves or decreasing our joy, but there's a way to do it that it uh, enhances our. Sl- life, enhances our inner life, and enhances our joy. In Buddhism, they talk a lot about what's called the bliss of renunciation. I think for a lot of people, those two words shouldn't go together. (laughs) It's just like, you know, it doesn't compute. But the bliss of renunciation, so the task is to discover how is it that we actually are better off simplifying our lives. That is a powerful exercise. And that's an exercise, I think, that can make uh, it sustainable and inspiring for people to simplify their lives. So how to drive your cars less? How to switch from gas to electrical cars? How to uh, hang your, uh, this it's a great name, Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, suggests that you hang your clothes to dry on an outside clothesline instead of the dryer. I mean, you know, if it's just you, it's not going to make any difference. Who's going to notice one way or the other? It doesn't matter, right? So my, you might as well, you know, you, you know, no, no, you know, it's not going to have any negligible, any serious impact, anything if you, you do it, right? So why bother? But if we start having millions of people doing that, the impact can be huge. And we've, we've seen big changes this way. When I grew up in Los Angeles, there was a vote in the 1960s about whether uh, people in Los Angeles were going to separate out their trash, to one can for trash and one for recyclables. 
And you know what the people voted? No. They voted against doing that in the 1960s. And there was so little consciousness and awareness of the environment and these kinds of issues back then. But now, uh, you know, we, ha- we're, we have three trash cans at our house. I don't know how many counties in the Bay Area have three trash cans now, but, you know, we have trash and recycling and compost. And it's a, you know, wonderful exercise to figure out, you know, sometimes, <laughs> you know, what kind of plastic is this? And, you know, I don't know, I've... <laughs> what number is this and where does it go? And, and um, the... Um, but I, I certainly delight in separating it all out. I kind of find a kind of a wonderful, wonderful kind of, I probably shouldn't say uh, game. Uh, I mean, it's such an important topic as, as uh, climate change and environment, to call it a game. But I kind of, kind of delight this idea of seeing and imagining how little trash we can produce. And I, I marvel and love these stories of people who figured out how to have no trash at all. Or they, or they, they're trash every week or every month or something. It's like a little, you know, you know, it can fit in the palm of their hand or something. I think it's fantastic. So it's for me, it's like fun. What a nice game, you know. Better that than poker. or <laughs> Other things people can do. Sudoku, <laughs> you know. And um, so. Um, they also talked about this intergovernment panel climate change to the, uh, reduce the amount of uh, animal foods that are eaten. Uh, meat and dairy and eggs, cheese and all these things. Um, they produce a lot of uh, uh, methane, a lot of carbon. It's a big impact on the environment, the production of meat. So that's a drag for people, meat eaters. How do we make this not a drag? How do we find... How do we find a way that this kind of switch and change uh, actually feels like an improvement and a joy. It does take some work. It does take some figuring out. But, um, I mean, that, I mean, to figure out how to be happier? <laughs> Isn't that kind of what we're doing Buddhism for anyway? Or is it magic thinking? If I just sit here, I'll be happier and then I don't have to do anything to be happy. That would be convenient. We got to do things. The, um, you know, and then not taking planes, airplanes as much, not driving as much. The last two days when I came down to IMC, I walked down here, and I delight in this walk. I, I, you know, I'm okay driving, and you know, in principle, you know, I mean, not in principle, but I'm okay, you know, the driving, the whole thing behind the steering wheel, and coming down here. You know, I don't, I don't mind it. It's okay. I love walking down here. Just walking down the sidewalks, looking at the trees, getting my body moving. What a great thing. However, it's really an inefficient use of my time. I mean, it takes about an hour of my day to walk back and forth from home. I mean, imagine all the websites I can visit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at all the things I could do. I could, I could stay home and read about the environment if I drove more. <laughs> but uh, I get exercise, which I love. I f- get a nice sense of vitality. I get 
fresh air usually, um, it's just the, the, the light. So what I'm trying to get across is that in Buddhism, there's a, there's a clear sense that our inner landscape and our outer landscape are closely connected. And it's not hard for us to see that now as the outer landscape, the outer world changes. It's, I think it has a lot to do with the inner landscape of some people who have greed, hate, and delusion uh, infested in there. The amount of greed and the amount of, um, you know, you know, the, you know, you might not be greedy, but in the chain of some of the things that you use, there was greed that brought it to you. Someone was chasing after wealth and money. Someone was cutting down rainforests. Someone were mining things, you know, what's virtually slave labor. Someone was, all, it's all this intensity of greed and wanting and getting and having that uh, someone had to have it in this human race that we have. So Buddhism points to the interface, the interrelatedness of the inner landscape and the outer landscape. Take care of your inner landscape. And as you take care of it and enhance it and develop it and do it, figure out how that can be done so that you can actively take care of the outer landscape better. Don't let that be an independent effort. Don't let your Buddhist practice your mindfulness, your attempt to try to resolve your own suffering, discover a spiritual life, whatever it might be, don't leave it isolated and separate from the wider world that we live in. Do this inner work in a way that enhances and develops and improves the lives of others and the world around us and the environment. Care for the world, care for the earth, care for everyone. If you want to be really happy, you can't really do it without having some care for the world that you live in. So if you want to be happy, care. Offer your compassion, offer your kindness, offer your, cons- offer your uh, attentiveness to this world we live in so that we can figure out a way to live that benefits the world at the same time that we benefit ourselves. Figure out a way to benefit yourself at the same time that you benefit the world. That's the task. I think that's a noble task. It's a beautiful thing to do for this Earth Care Week. So that's for the week. So uh, it's, you know, to the degree to which we're all sharing this insight meditation movement, it's your week too. So maybe this is a week, a particular week, in which you can kind of give a little more thought and emphasis and education around the issues of the environment. And, uh, and maybe if the message I gave today, you took it to heart, uh, maybe you can figure out, do the exercise, do the reflection, about how you can change something about the way you live, simplify, use less, live more lightly on this planet. But to do, do the exercise to do it in a way that you feel enhanced, you feel improved by it, that would be great. And that would be a great model, great example for others, so we can all learn to change. Great. Thank you.